let, let me twine my arms about that body, and do contest as hotly and as nobly with thy love, as ever in ambitious strength I did contend against thy valor. Know thou first, I loved the maid I married, never man sigh truer breath, but that I see th- thee here, thou noble thing, more dances my rapt heart, than when I first my wedded mistress saw, bestride my threshold. Ooh. That's gay. Sorry, wrong movie. Wrong movie, right actor. Oh, shit. (laughs) Almost got it. Okay. This is the Flick Lab. I'm Karri. I'm one of the hosts of of this unfortunate product. (laughs) 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 And my co-host is Henrik. He is the brother from another mother. (laughs) The the common blip of the podcast. Fortunately, we are here to we're here here to improve the marketability, the honor of <laughs> podcasts in general with our wonderful show. Which means that we are once again touching upon some age-old film that basically everybody has already seen, talked about, and then forgotten. Really, this was my first time seeing Coriolanus, and <laughs> I, I I actually am not that surprised that this is your first time seeing Coriolanus. Yeah. Well, of course not, because I usually say that I have not seen some of your recommendations. But it stands that this is a film that was not seen too much as far as I can see. And it didn't do so well either, because it didn't have a lot of marketing even. And no, the film in question was very well received. And yeah. it, it garnered a lot of praise. But unfortunately, it was mostly seen only in in film festivals festival circles and it didn't get a major theatrical release henceforth it kind of was doomed to be somewhat unknown and unseen picture something that pretty much covers fine's entire directing career which now consists of three films most of them all being in Mostly known in in the film festival circles and not so much, you know, your average film theater going audiences. That's right. It wouldn't be a flick lab episode if there wouldn't be something a little bit off about it. Not off, but something. (laughs) (laughs) It it wouldn't be this podcast if we would actually be talking about largely seen, popular and liked films. Yeah, I guess so. Well, yeah, we did. Yeah, like, like where, where's all the Marvel movie episodes, Conry? Why ain't we talking about the Marvel movies? Well, that could be because there are about five hundred and sixty-seven episodes of each of those movies. Yep, but plus the TV series. But most likely, something that we will some point face is the demand slash recommendations to to cover Joker, seeing how we already touched 
Parasite. Yeah, well, these of course have nothing to do with each other in reality, but uh, okay, if you so wish. Uh, they they share a theme, which is something I, I would very well see that now that we have talked about Parasite, the next recommendation we get is to talk about Joker. Sounds like somebody went to see Joker. I haven't still I still haven't seen the film. Okay. In all in all honesty. Yeah, I'm game, and we are game because I say so to do more premiere films and new films. So, yeah. Yeah, well, that that's you being game. Premiere films cost Armon a leg still in Finland, even today. Oh. The ticket prices are only going up. So it's a good thing that we have our Patreon ready and going. <laughs> but yeah, <clears throat> oh my dear, good lord, this is done by Ray Fiennes. Ray Fiennes, who is best known from playing Voldemort in the Harry Potter series and of course playing the new M in uh, Spectre and uh, yep. now No Time to Die. And yep. kind of in Skyfall as well, because he was named the new M. Yeah. Coriolanus is, is Fine's directorial debut, which kind of makes it also an interesting film film to study. Because here we kind of see Fine's taking his first first steps in, in directing, and you can kind of start to see the ropes that, that Fine's might traverse later in his directing career. So, dear listeners... Come hitherward and join us in this great adventure with all. It's a very restrained style. No huge hero music here. <laughs> and uh, some of it may be down to the fact that the budget was slow. There is also some themes that you could say was homoerotic. We will get to that in a bit. There's also the fact that uh, this is one of the least known Shakespeare plays. And were you familiar with the play, actually, before watching this film? I myself, I am, because I am not... You are not human. <laughs> I, I am not an uncivilized brute. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, no, uh, to me, Coriolanus has always, or, or always and always, but it, it, it's a play, it is one of my favorite Shakespeare's. I'm more kind of a Garner towards Coriolanus than some of the more famous and well-known works of the part. Like I, I like Coriolanus more than I like, for example, Romeo and Juliet or The Midnight Summer's Dream. You heretic. Uh, yep, yep. When, when it comes to, to me being heretic, I, I do feel that Romeo and Juliet is overhyped and Midnight Summer's Dream, even though it has quite not concept, a concept, on its own right, I kind of never just got into it. I felt that the fantastical elements didn't kind of go into any direction I would have wanted them to go. It's kind of the same problem that I also have with much ado about nothing. But I I was thinking that that, uh, that if you yourself is are not that familiar with Shakespeare's works, his plays and the adaptations made from those those plays, in that case, Coriolanus could be kind of an easy entry point to get yourself versed with Shakespeare adaptations, because this has them guns and all the shooty-shooty-bang-bang. Yes, that's right. I definitely found it quite, quite interesting way to put it into the 21st century, and also not, which is the style of the film, which we will get to in a bit. Yeah. On top of that, 
I also was interested in covering this film, particularly you know, from Shakespeare filmatizations, because we have now been doing this podcast over a year, and we are kind of getting closer and closer to doing two years, reaching the 100th at some point, and I kind of thought that... 100 you know, episodes, mind you. Yeah, yeah, episodes. Not, not, not years. Yeah. yeah. But I, seeing how we have been going on for such a long time, I thought that this would also kind of merit a moment where we kind of take a look back of of our podcast, kind of a return back to the roots, sail on familiar waters, so to speak. And Coriolanus, in my opinion, kind of does work on that regard also, both thematically and location-wise. The film being shot in Belgrade and Serbia, which we Mm. visited in the Pretty Village Pretty Flame, the actual Senate Hall, and and the streets that you are that we see in the film are actual war zone locations. They have seen seen actual battle and like the Senate, and the Senate Hall of the film I've understood is the House of National Assembly of of Repu- Republic of Serbia, yep. which is where Milosevic originally took office. And thematic wise. This kind of a travels the same theme that we touched upon in the Apocalypse Now episode, which was kind of a watershed moment for us as podcast hosts in the sense that in Apocalypse we finally kind of took down the wall between us and the listeners and we were really intimate about, about ourselves, our relationship to army and the disconnect that... that a person who has served may very well feel towards the society he now has to re-enter and once again be part of. And that's kind of the main theme of of Coriolanus, that disconnect and that, like, the the difficulty in, in, in being a person that can live with peace when, when his heart and mind only knows war. That's kind of the main question of the film. How do you do that? Okay, very deep. I was thinking about why this particular filming location during the film, actually. It's Serbia. It's, of course, an area that has seen a lot of war, of course. And But then, again, kind of the dynamics or the story of the war is anything but what this film contains. But, yeah. In in a sense, yeah. Like, in in factual sense... Yeah, the conflict in Coriolanus is different from from the revolutionary wars or, or the independence wars of, of Serbia. It could also be just the fact that it, this was a cheap and convenient place to film, a place where Ray Fiennes has also returned to film his uh, follow-up films. No, I, w- I would actually say that when, when it comes to Coriolanus, filming in Serbia was mostly a conscious and thematic choice. I can see that in many ways. For example, this city by the sea, the city which is surrounded by water, and uh, it looks very Italian. Yeah, and also so, something that the film aims aims to do. We are going to touch upon, you know, talking points of the podcast already in the, in the opening minutes of the episodes. Um, that the film wants to be kind of a universal take on on war. And a person's emotional coming home 
from war. And I would say that that's the reason why Fines wanted to shoot the film on on a real on a location that has seen real war with extras who most likely have seen real conflict, have seen real hunger and real food shortage during the Ser- Serbian civil wars. And also to tie it down to, to the theme of the film taking place in, in no place, in no particular city or town. The film does mention that, that it, it's based on the city of Rome. They are Romans, but they are Romans only in quotation marks. In the end, the film itself opens with a, a line, a city calling itself Rome. Yes, a place calling itself Rome. Yeah. And it's not important for the film's context, really, where it's based, but it can be a place called Rome anywhere, and you can do the story and it will still work in contemporary environment. Yep, and I, I would say that's most likely the driving theme why Belgrade in fine shooting locations. He wants to kind of have imaginary place, which is not any specific place, but is kind of a universal all places. This can happen in everywhere and nowhere at the same time. And to achieve that effect, he kind of takes it into a place that you can't really pinpoint. You can't really recognize it unless you are from the said region and because of this not set it directly into Rome but instead set it in into a into a place where you can actually borrow a lot of elements and then use borrowed elements to tell a universal story yes indeed very happy to see that we are back in Serbia I'm starting to like this area more and more Something to visit, most definitely, at some point. You, you are starting yeah. to like the, the, like the area after seeing all, all the horrible war films and the general <laughs> travesty that, that Serbia has faced. I know, perfectly logical. But, um, I don't know, at the same time I find something uh, romantic and, and the landscapes are very varied. Yeah, they were also very helpful in Serbia. They were accom- accommodating for the film by lending their Serbian army for the scenes, providing tools, tanks, men. It's nice to see, and hopefully this will carry uh, Serbia to be a more visited place when making films. Would it be seen by scene? Yep, sure, why not? We are sharpening a knife now, and the TV carries information of what's about to come. TV which connects many of these scenes and carries vital information to keep the story going. Yeah, the, uh, in, in the original text, the information is usually being relayed by messengers and couriers, which of course finds himself now that he's modernizing the text, kind of gets leaves out and switches to modern technology like TV news, news broadcasts to yeah. showcase the audiences more that this is happening today, this is the 20th century, but also to once again use this uni- very universal uh, TV broadcasting style. Like if you contrast the TV podcasts in, in Coriolanus, for example, the Finnish news podcasts, uh, broadcasts, it's two completely different words. This is more aching to BBC or CNN or other global news broadcasts wh- whose visual language has kind of a, also become 
become universal in the sense that you you kind of you see the same fonts, you see the same image layout, you see similar type of studios. You never actually know what news station that is, but you have the Im- immediate reference point to a real life news station like CNN and BBC News. Yes, in the original play, you have indeed the messengers. Uh, it often goes like this: like, did you hear? Didn't you hear? Uh, and they carry on the message maybe several days, hours after something actually happened. Yeah, the original writing time of the play also being kind of a mystery and something that historians have never actually been able to agree. When was the play really been really written? It's it's commonplace fact knowledge that the play is from Shakespeare's later career. Often remarked to take been written in either somewhere around 1608 and 1610, making it only a few years before Shakespeare himself retired from the theatre world, and few years before his eventual death. And this is something that has been kind of been deciphered from the connections that Shakespeare make in in the place context, in, in the place text to real world events in Britain. Like, for example, the Thames freezing over, which you can kind of see in in some lines, and also the way how the play works and operates, the, and the things that it highlights as as in, in text and as themes. Speaking of themes, this play is, of course, based on historical persons and events. Do you have anything on those? I'm not entirely sure who is the real historical person uh, whose story is kind of being veiled to the audiences here. Like, the, uh, I, I would say that the play is kind, kind of a combination of, of several historical elements. The main historical source that Shakespeare most likely has used when writing the play would be the works of Greek biographer and essayist Plutarch. And more notably, his historical biography series known as Parallel Lives. And also, on top of that, I would say that also Titus Livius's book Up Urbe Condita most likely has been like like the historical reference point from which Shakespeare has taken his story. But on top of that, Shakespeare also adds a lot of elements and themes from British events that happened relatively close or, or well, were well known in British discourse. Like, for example, Coriolanus as a character himself draws contemporary pa- parallels to downfalls of both Robert Devereux and Sir Walter Reich, both of them being feared and ad- admired soldiers of their time, enjoying the appreciation of the Queen Elizabeth I, but like with Coriolanus, persons whose pride and easily offended nature eventually doomed both of the men and netted them the death sentences for treason. I don't think William Shakespeare ever traveled anywhere really far. So I think he has all of his inspiration coming from literature to his own works. Uh, Maybe you know something about that. Uh, I would also most likely guess that Shakespeare didn't travel. 
this is yeah. kind of a you can you can kind of see this negatively in in Shakespeare's works. Like there is a lot of, for example, geographical mistakes that he makes. If if you go through Shakespeare's plays and you try to draw the world map according to how Shakespeare states in in his plays where the countries are in relationship to each other, you mm. get really weird world map. Like fucking Denmark and Norway, for example, are switching places and, and st- stuff like that. So on that regard, I would say that Shakespeare most likely didn't travel. The second reason for this is that Shakespeare most likely never really was that rich in the end. Like, he obviously, he Mm. made money, he was admired and well-acknowledged playwright, but he uh, also, he, he wasn't a monarch. He wasn't anyone coming from the noble lineage. His father was a mayor and and somewhat large immediately mediocre large political figure in in his own town so there there was something there was some money there was some prestige behind Shakespeare and his name but to be able to really travel around the world to go to to distant places and locations most I would say most likely were out of Shakespeare's reach monetary wise what Shakespeare yeah. most likely was, like you remarked, was someone who was very well traversed in literature and and book uh, books and histories and and someone who gathered a lot of information from the sources that he was able to get get his hands on, which would be something like, for example, written historical biographies, written works of history other plays that have had survived throughout the times and and other stuff like this like going through the historical account and that would be kind of where Shakespeare's understanding and knowledge of the world and history would stem from yeah but uh, also William Shakespeare even though he had a lot of appreciation I understand he also faced uh, quite a bit of opposition at times at times yeah um, Shakespeare also, in his plays, at times he was extremely critical of, of his political, of the politics of his time, and basically the societal systems that he himself faced in the 1600s. Demonstrators are getting towards the gate, and there is supposed to be kind of a bread or a bread factory happening on the other side. I, I thought at first that there's something wrong. With this guy, first of all, who is one of these, let's say, uh, this opposition force, since he was speaking in such a bizarre manner, and I didn't yet know that the whole film would be spoken in this Elizabethan way. Senator Meninius is seen in between on the TV, played by Brian Cox. This is sort of a father father figure for Coriolanus as role, and uh, appreciator of uh, Ray Fiennes as the Many uh, seem to be one of these leading players, Brian Cox, Meninius. There is, of course, Charles Butler as Tullus Ifidius. Uh, you have uh, Vanessa Redgrave playing Volumnia. Yeah, and Ra- Ray Fiennes as Coriolanus. So those kind of make the core of the film. Pretty much, yeah. The, the film has a lot of 
other characters, but they are more or less side characters, especially Coriolanus' wife, who is barely seen in the film or even in the original text. And even then, many of these actors who even have smaller roles are extremely talented. For example, Jessica Chastain indeed as Virgilia. Everybody is, it's really a great decision from Ray Fine's part to, to make it so that there's, there's a lot of kind of supporting actors who are extremely talented and it really gives the bones to the film. Yeah, but you can kind of see that Fine's has been calling some favors when making his, his debut here. Mm, could be, but uh, even before Coriolanus, many were already aware of Ray Fine's acting jobs, and we know that uh, Redgrave was still aboard the ship of this project, even though the budget was uh, withdrawn or cut in half. There at least ha- happened the fact that the budget was cut in half at some point, but Vanessa Redgrave uh, <clears throat> endured it all and wanted very much to be part of this. So during this demonstration, the people are shouting about bread. There is this uh, spit of this central character of the protesters. The spitting moment was something that uh, the actor came up at the moment. Serbian anti-terrorist unit is here playing the police. So does the Elizabethan English distract you in any way? Does it not work for you when it's set against the modern backdrop or context uh, Maybe the Not. same question also story-wise. Does it affect your viewing experience in a negative way? Um, to kind of uh, break it down to two questions. D- does it bother me? Uh, not anymore, because I've kind of gotten used to it, watching through the Shakespeare film adaptations. I do remember when I've kind of also faced my first film adaptation of Shakespeare's works. I was also kind of going through what the hell is this why why can't people talk talk normal but yeah but that, time... bro- sorry to interrupt but these are probably films that are also set in somewhere in the 17th century but this is making an exception uh they are and they ain't this ain't like by far this ain't the first shakespeare adaptation that ha- has kind of a been modernized or taken out of its its or original surroundings, uh, you kind of can see pretty much everyone do, doing somehow Shakespeare. That there has been the the we bring the source material to the modern day adaptations, like for example, Press Lumar's Romeo and Juliet with Leonardo DiCaprio. There has been Indian modernizations of Shakespeare. The Akira Kurosawa kind of modernized. Yeah, but do they use this this old way of English, old speech, old English language? Um, Kurosawa did not. Indians, in my if I remember correctly, did uh, did not. But Leonardo DiCaprio sure as fuck did. That was actually my first proper Shakespeare film adaptation I ever saw. Brass Lumar's Romeo and Juliet, and it did bother me back then because. Uh, to answer your second question, does it affect this affect following the story? It kind of does because Shakespeare's poetry is at times really hard to follow and understand. Like e- even if you would really read read the text and really take your time 
going it through slowly and really giving putting effort so that you can understand what you are reading. It yeah. even 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 then at times it's really hard to understand and that can affect how well you can actually follow the story as it progresses. Yeah, at times I felt felt like I was watching a French film in a theater with Polish subtitles, trying yep. to get a decipher what's going on. But for the most of it, of course, there are sentences that, at least for me, are completely lost. But but for the most part, it's uh, not a problem. But you, this is definitely a film where I recommend highly to keep the subtitles on. And I just yeah, want to same, bring up this here. whole po- yeah. I just want to bring up this whole point because this is a film that has uh, gotten a lot of problems also for native English speakers. And this is uh, I was as far as I see it from the reviews from the from the general population. It seems that uh, this is the toughest thing to swallow throughout the running time. The biggest uh, argument against the film. I can very well see and understand why that would be the case. Especially with, with Coriolanus, which is not as famous and well-known as a, as a play, as for example Romeo and Juliet, where you can kind of compensate not really being able to understand all the time what the characters are saying by simply by virtue of knowing the play itself, having heard most of the lines portrayed in some form in somewhere else previously and this this can help you to kind of uh, overcome the hurdle of Shakespearean language at times yeah I'm sure this would have been much more easily swallowed much more successful in the theaters where you actually usually even don't have subtitles for English films in English so uh, if you would have had it put into a modern context fully, maybe just kind of play it to the fullest and maybe go like, yo, Coriolanus, man, I'm going to fucking kill you, motherfucker. So that would speak to the modern audiences. I think what what Ray Fiennes is doing here is that since he had has had a lot of successful roles in very famous films, the guy has some cash. And then he's thinking all right, I can put my vision finally on the celluloid and, and do this uh, epic Coriolanus and not really care about even if it's going to be successful or not because the guy can take the hit, I would assume. Because he has also stuck with this kind of this kind of low, relatively low pro- exposure productions in his next two films as well. Mm, yeah, may- maybe he is calculated that he can take a hit. Then again... Using the actual Shakespearean language throughout your film is kind of an... It's a choice that often, especially the actors coming from the stage background, which cons- uh, consists most of the British actors, a great, great many deal of them. They often do choose that when they, they do their Shakespearean adaptation, they, they do stick to the original text out of admiration. Like the, the fines is in mm. the the on the first one when do, doing this stunt. This was also done in Richard the Third by Ian McKellen, who was producer in that film, but mostly did do pretty much everything else except to direct. He produced. He was writing the script. He played the main part. That's also a filmatization that uses 
the original text as it was written. Same goes with Paras Lumar and like the, the lineage of Shakespeare adaptations that do the exact same thing that finds it doing here, sticking to the original source material and not modernize it. But I think it can be stated that one of the very appeals of this film is that it's mixing the old English language with the modern context. People throwing grenades and uh, and arming themselves with some automatic weapons and tanks and uh, using this old language. This is something that will either put you off, you will think about it in a way that this just doesn't work. But if you think about it in another way, it's just kind of a artistic interpretation, which I, at least I found enjoyable and not distracting in any way. Albeit comical at times, but maybe that was also, in a way, something that the director was willing to keep in. Yup. Another thing, thing that most likely also affected the box office revenues of the film a great deal was, like you mentioned earlier, the fact that the play is not that well known out of yeah. Shakespeare's canon. It's it it has gathered gathered more knowledge, or it's it's more known these days thanks to the largely to to the fact that Tom Hiddleston, following his Marvel fame, took it on to stage to to portray Coriolanus in a stage adaptation of the play of the play, and that. I would say, gather enough publicity so that the play is at least a bit more well-known these days than it was in 2011. But that that's yeah. something... That that came after after Fiennes' film, and he, even with all the help that Hiddleston has been able to give give to Coriolanus the play, it still, even, it still is somewhat relatively unknown, especially when you compare it to, for example, Romeo and Juliet or Macbeth or Hamlet or any other the, the high-five Shakespearean plays. Some things in the film have been mixed up a little bit from the original stage play. We have a scene where this there's a guy from Rome that is held in a cellar by by Aphidius. And this ends with Ophidius shooting the guy. Yeah. It doesn't exactly go like this in the play. And uh, this same parts of the dialogue are more or less there, but they happen after after Coriolanus has been banished from Rome. They do, yeah. And in in the text, that that relaying that, that information, like, like the... Uh, growing discontent within Rome. It's been relayed by basically a Wolskian spy and a Roman revolutionary, or someone who is a citizen of Rome but who hates Rome enough to betray his city. In in here, that information is being relayed by a POW. Yeah, I think it's a very good idea that they had this type of a scene in the beginning so we get to know the main actors very quickly and effectively we get to know that uh, both Coriolanus and uh, Aphidius are not exactly in love with each other and we have a scene of a council of war gathering with great quotes from Shakespeare for example quote he is a lion that I'm proud to hunt end quote and stares at his enemy on television which now has set up the whole thing 
Yup, uh, the opening scenes also very well kind of a telegraphs to the audience what type of persons these are and the ruthless nature of both Aphidius and and Coriolanus and also the discontent and and the troubles that both cities face most notably Rome faces as as there is the the citizens revolt over the food shortage. Yeah, there is a lot of issues at the same time we have the food shortage and we have now a lot of street wars scenes filmed in the town of Panchovo outside of Belgrade. Some real and some added graffiti in the scenes, some fake concrete walls, kind of a mixture of things. We do and the uh, uh, street patterning and and the question of food shortage that appear in the story is also something that has kind of given the historians ability to pinpoint the the rough estimates or the time spread during which the play most likely was was being written. Like it's often seen that the citizens revolt over the food shortage in, in the story is another ho- note to a historical event of Shakespeare's time, this being the peasant revolt of 1607 which was a socialist revolt opposing the rich landowners attempted land grab by fencing off fields and pastures that had previously been in or in free use by every farmer and peasant and the fencing off of those fields and pastures led into a real life food shortage which ravaged through the less rich population causing a lot of anger and eventual maelstrom of violence which like in the in in the play or in the film where where the revolt is being suffocated uh, or being smothered through act of violence Coriolanus uses the police force to beat off the revolters in real life also the authorities used force to smother of the revolt, which eventually led into the execution of of the leaders of the said revolt. Okay. You can kind of also kind of see this in, in some of the words used in the original play, like the usage of words like gentry and harvestman. Nicely played cut there, when we see the young boy with the gun and in, in his own, fi- own front yard which interrupts the war scenes for now. And we go in inside the Volumnia household, and the TV news are now once again broadcasting the information for the audience and everyone alike. Volumnia indeed played by Vanessa Redgrave. Who maybe introduces us to one of the most insidious aspects of the story, which is the way how Coriolanus's mother has knowingly and purposefully driven his son to war and and to battles so that she too can kind of enjoy the shades of of glory by proxy from her son i didn't think about it like that i just felt that it must be something that was quite regular phenomena during the times when this was written as a play well it's Kind of a case of both in in the end. Like in in the, the mother 
outright acknowledges and admits that ever since Caius Marcius was born and was a little kid, he she has pushed him to become a soldier and to chase for the glory that you can attain from battle. And this is something that she kind of shows throughout the play. And there are a lot of moments where you can kind of see that the mother is pushing ideas and setting up attributes of of masculinity for Caius in order to to first Caius and by proxy her to attain societal admiration. Like for example, when she remarks, "Away, you fool!" It more becomes a man than guilt his trophy. The beast of Hecuba, when she did suckle Hector, looked not lovelier than Hector's forehead when it spit forth blood, at Grecian sword, contemning. But at the same time, it's also, it is some, like you remarked, it is somewhat also a societal norm, or, or, or a thing that is held in high societal value and regard, not just Romans, but also Volskis. Like yeah, there okay. is, the, the Wolskis also express very heavy pro-war mentalities. Like, for example, the, and once again, this is in the play, the character does, that not, does not appear in the film, one of the serving men of Aphidius in Aphidius' ho- household, where the first serving man, man remarks, let me have war. I say, it exceeds peace as far as day does night, it's sprightly waking audible and full of wind. Peace is very apoplexy, lethargy, mullet, deaf, sleepy, insensible, a getter of more bastard children than wars a destroyer of men, which translates into basically the entire household being very... Yay, war! It's good for all. Whereas, whereas peace is something that simply makes you lazy and dull, and kinda even distorts the the balance of of the public or the people by this by the laziness leading into a huge amount of sex, which leads into a huge amount of bastards. Of course, when things are turned around and uh, Coriolanus has joined the Volskians. At least the mother, Kvolumnia, is not looking forward to any kind of a confrontation and I believe the mother is very pleased with the information that there will be no more war. She I... is, at, but right on the next moment she is really happy to take <clears throat> the credit and the valor and honor for ending the conflict. As Coriolanus signs the peace treaty. Did she do that? She, in my opinion, yup. She precisely does that. As she gives the military salute right after yeah. the, the Senate officials have remarked that. Let's thank this person for ending the conflict. Yeah, well, she's also a proud supporter of her, of her country. Kind of a very... Uh, she's not shying away from popularity or fame or uh, attention, whereas Coriolanus is the complete opposite. And the way that uh, Volumnia has sent her children to war, 
at least Coriolanus, it yeah, it kind of speaks to me that that Volumnia is a very proud woman, a proud proud woman, proud defender of her country. She is also someone who strongly believes that war is well, if if not good, at least honorable, and and if if not directly something that is a, a kind of a natural element or inhabitant to um, to man at at least something that man should more or less strive for mm. i on my part i saw volumnia's character as a as a very straightforward and a honest person honestly but i see where you're coming from with your reading i suppose yeah, I, like... I kind of saw her as a conniving bitch <laughs> well, Vanessa Redgrave is uh, someone who is known for playing conniving bitch roles and has been in many films that are known to most people around the planet. Deep Impact, uh, Mission Impossible, of course, she was playing Max. In Little Odessa, she appeared also, and many more. I'm always happy to see her, very impressed by her acting wherever she goes. And of course, Ray Fiennes, anything about Ray Fiennes? Well, what can you say, Ray Fiennes, that is not Voldemort, Voldemort, and Voldemort? Um, <laughs> Fiennes is someone who really has made a name of himself in in cinema circles. Like you mentioned, Voldemort, Voldemort, and M. Also, originally got his breakthrough in, in Hollywood circles by... Much like in Coriolanus, by playing a blood so drinking fascist, mm. or if, if or a fascist being questionable term to use in case of Coriolanus, but did get his his kind of a starting point in Hollywood in Schindler's, Schindler's List. List. Yeah, anything about Brian Cox? Um, Cox is kind of a, also an in industry veteran. He's something but one of those these days, one of those old timely gentlemen who you kinda get into a film when you need to have someone in in the role of power, but also something that can kind of show you that can give you the um, the menacing and a bit frail, bit old at the same time. Uh, on Cox's part, I guess the Big breakthrough for him was playing the very original, first time ever on screen, Hannibal Lecter in Manhunter, which was the film adaptation of Red Dragon. This being some good, would have been like six years before Anthony Hopkins donned the role and made it the household name and extremely popular, but Cox was the original Lecture. Ever since that, really kind of weird at times, quite interesting film career. There is historical figures like like Killer in Rob Roy. There there are the spy films like playing the controlling operators in Long Kiss Goodnight and in some of the Jason Bourne movies. And then there are the tough, bit evil military figures like being the main bad guy in X-Men 2. And yeah. then then in Coriolanus, playing once again someone who is in role of power, 
Power is someone who is a bit behind the scenes smooth operator, as he is, as a senator, but at the same time being, in the end, kind of a soft, kind of an easy to break old man. I sprang not more in joy at first hearing he was a man-child, than now in first seeing he had proved himself a man. This quote from Volumnia also, indeed is a very powerful way to describe her character right off the get-go, which she does at the sofa to the wife of Coriolanus. As they watch the television, the hell of fear and destruction takes over from here. As we continue the war scenes, water from frightened, frightened man is something Coriolanus drinks, and in the play it's a man who helps Coriolanus with a shelter. The confrontation of Coriolanus versus Ophidius, there's a lot of great dialogue once again, like throughout the entire film and the play. We get more exposure to these Serbian actors, like Dragan Mitsanovic, playing Titus Lartius or Titus Lartius, which Ray Fiennes has described as an incredible Serbian actor. Some of these Serbian actors have been dubbed in post some of them not. I believe Dragan Mitsanovic got to use his own voice here. But it gets a little murkier in the in the old lieutenant's voice when we are next to the car where the family has been killed. I think he sounds a little bit too English. Or he may be really talented with accents. Yeah, the Serbian actor who utters that uh, Coriolanus is the devil for clarity's sake in this podcast. There are some small changes to the original plays. Is um... Yeah, some dialogue has been sometimes reduced, a lot of it has been reduced greatly. A lot of dialogue was filmed, but in the editing booth, Ray Fiennes uh, approved many of these cuts to make the, to kind of uh, make it flow faster. And uh, some experienced artists told him which kind of dialogue would be essential to keep and which one he would have to let go of. For example, here we have the quote, I'll fight with none but thee, for I do hate thee, worse than a promise breaker. So this worse than a promise breaker does not exist in the film. It uh, sounds a bit weird in modern context, (laughs) but so does a lot of the dialogue here. Coriolanus has reached some kind of a psychotic euphoria as he comes from the battle with Aphidius alive. Once again, we have this... uh, war-torn areas. There's a abandoned hotel from the Yugoslavian days. Oh, and in the fight between these characters of Coriolanus and Aphidius, the swords are replaced by knives. He wanted still to keep the close combat, not just, you know, shoot somebody in the head or anything. Ray Fiennes said that, quote, a tight filming, or it's not actually a direct quote, I believe. Ray Fiennes said that a tight filming schedule sometimes gives the film a messy, gritty in- intensity. And I think that's exactly what happened here. Here it works great. They fall through the window during the fighting, there's the concussion, and then story goes on. This might be a little weak cut. There's the concussion, and it's immediately followed by when we see Alphidius, who has already gotten up and it has gone to the car where the family has been murdered. Uh, it felt yeah. a little bit like there could have been something there in between. 
altogether the film does on an occasion it it does really have some weaker cuts and cuts where you kind of really see that that cut has been forced especially when mm. when there are the switches from the the urban combat combat scenes to the newscasting scenes or i have to give it to you though that there is this perverse delight of Volumnia about the war wounds, which at the time seemed to be a sign of honor, a sign of value, that you have had a certain amount of battle scars. Funny that you can actually count them so accurately as separate wounds but or scars, but yeah, that this is the discussion point. Uh, yeah, but they also work as, as a sign of honor and sign of valor. To, to others also, like, like the general public in Rome. Later, when Coriolanus tries to become the senator, one, one of the big talking points is how can and why is Coriolanus so opposed to the idea that he would show his scars to the public? Yeah, it seems to be like the, the crushing point for his character where some desperate measures have to be taken because battle scars were not shown. Military parade, kind of a homecoming ceremony, is where the situation starts to fall apart. He has a great greeting, a hundred thousand welcomes, and where Coriolanus becomes to be known actually as General Coriolanus. Yeah, or he gets the surname of, of Coriolanus. Character up until this point has just been Caius Martius. He he gets the new name or new surname Coriolanus uh, as a kind of a reward for his actions in the city of Coriolini, which was the Volscian town where Coriolanus went and well once again kicked off Fidius's ass, but uh, also you know drove back the Volskis. Jon Snow plays the news news anchor well he doesn't need to play it because he's a very well-known news anchor in in the england i this, really didn't actually catch that one I it's something suppose. that probably nobody will catch unless you're living in the country most likely yeah sounds very much like a british celebrity <laughs> this happens during mini news making fun of these two politicians Ending with the quote, more of your conversation would infect my brain. Okay. But he appears a couple of times. Woman protester is blaming Coriolanus of arrogance. Yeah, there is the, there's the black woman and the white guy who are talking about Coriolanus. And uh, uh, was it the black woman who is blaming Coriol- Coriolanus of the arrogance? I'm saying black woman because I need to make the differentiation to the next TV show where Coriolanus himself appears. Yeah, Th- that that she is. Uh, granted, many of the characters throughout the story actually blame Coriolanus for precisely for being arrogant. That's kind of the main sticking point that everybody has against Coriolanus, or at least the main sticking point that they are willing to use against Coriolanus. But the relationship between Coriolanus and his mother seems to be a very close one, as... She is tending the wounds that he has gotten. Yeah, she also is the only female figure in the story who Coriolanus actually agrees to listen to and take advice from. Coriolanus 
And and this is some some Oedipus type of shit here. He's even more affectionate with his mom than he is with his wife. On the commentary track, Ray Fiennes commented on this. I can't remember exactly what he said, but it was meant to be, of course, like a kind of an intimate moment between the mother and the son. But it wasn't like there was anything else going on beyond that. But when the wife opens the door and sees her healing the wounds, she kind of feels that she broke some kind of a moment and she seems to be a little bit jealous of the relationship, the close relationship that they share. Feels maybe a little bit uncomfortable about it, even though she shouldn't. Well, maybe she kind of should. I mean, that might be what Fines is saying on the commentary track. My, I, myself, I'm going off with the Finnish DVD that does not have yeah. director's This was commentary. roughly what, what, she, what he said on the commentary track, yeah. Yeah, that might very well be. But that's not actually what gets translated in the imagery of the film. This is the first time that this happens in the movie, but this isn't the last time it happens, because the same goddamn dynamic, very much in the exact same thematic core, also happens later in the film when Volumnia is kind of teaching Coriolanus how to approach the people, and when she's giving him the whole lecture, no, you have to go out there and you have to apologize, and you have to kind of, you have to talk nice to the people, just for 15 fucking minutes, so that they give you the vote. Yeah, and there is this kind of affectionate look, and there's also some affectionate touch you could argue at the end, when they try to convince Coriolanus not to carry on with the attack. Yeah, and, and the same way, also the wife again is being left on the other side of the door, where she once again looks upon Volumnia and Coriolanus in bit jealously. You can you can actually mm. see some hurt on her face once again. Yeah, that again. is an interesting point. But I at least I can't read anything else into it that that they have a very close relationship and uh, she's just kind of being this type of mother just who gives kind of this affectionate looks uh, every now and then and likes to touch her children. That sounds so wrong. Could, could, could be. Like, like, like you said, I said it out, that there is a f- director's commentary track from Fines. Like, I'm, I'm willing to take the dude on his word, even though I haven't myself, haven't listened through the track or haven't, I don't have the access to Fines' commentary track. But if he says so, then fine, I'm I'm willing to believe him. Uh, I'm willing to believe his words. But once again, without the commentary track, like just going by visuals alone, blind, I really I got really strong, got kind of a, a bit perverted. Mom, son, Oedipus swipes. Not not mm. necessary to the penis goes where lengths of it, but to me the relationship did look a bit off, especially and mostly because thanks to the fact that the wife is also living under the same roof, being part of the household. And I, it's I just think... constantly, constantly only Coriolanus and his mom. Yeah, maybe so, in the Oedipus direction. Or just what I get is that she is ex- exceedingly proud of of her son, which is also seen when they are, uh, when the mother is gathered uh, 
watching the television and sees on the news the ceremony in the in the parliament building that uh, her son is now getting all this fame and she is the only one who is smiling widely while the others look a bit concerned and uncomfortable like the wife yeah good call good call also there's a glimpse at the marital bedroom the director wanted to hold the moment a little bit longer but cutting happened in this instance as well and yeah, and this I... is an interesting scene actually because the the only the the only recognition as ray fine said that is given to to the wife here is just turning the head slightly to the right on the bed and that's it and that's it and that plays like like the, the dynamic between Coriolanus and his wife plays a huge goddamn part in well in the film once it kind of reaches all, all that homo erotic moments Honestly, this is, this is honestly, some... I I didn't see that homoerotic when I, when I was listening to the commentary track, and he made the notion that this uh, has some pretty clear or whatever whatever was the way that way that he said, but he mentioned that some homoerotic stuff could be seen here, and I was like, what? Seriously? Kakata, uh, what? What? I I mean, come on, man! It's it's already in a goddamn text of the play. It's, it's not just, you know, the long gazes at each other's eyes. That, uh, could that you, you do you have some, some quote to drop from there? Because I know that there is something that you can read in such a way and then you, then again you can have an alternative reading to some. Um, on, on that remark, is, is there actual homoerotic relationships going on in the story? My take is, is no. What what Shakespeare is talking is about the connection that two men can have, and especially a, a kind of an emotional, kind of an understanding that two per- men that breathe and talk violence can have towards each other, while the society surrounding them is unable to understand them and is unable to understand what type of people they are. Ooh. Like Shakespeare talks uh, talks about special bond and kinship that those who who live the uh, live the life of war uh, or same the same disconnected the sur- surrounding world of peace can share and by that remark yeah the, ca- the characters themselves are straight but the language used is pretty damn strong. Like there's the there's the remark that Coriolanus makes when he is in Coriolani and he's meeting his his comrade in arms, his old time war veteran friend, and Coriolanus quotes, uh, "Oh, let me clip ye in arms as sound as when I wooed in heart, as merry as when our nuptial day was done and Tapros burned to bedward." He's using the actual that the language he's using is he's he's describing the joy and happiness that he felt when he first took his his wife to marital bed, and this is what he uses when he describes the happiness he feels when he faces his old war buddy. 
Or when 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 you know when Caius and Aphidius meet after Caius has been driven from Rome. This is the moment when Caius comes to Aphidius's home and Aphidius goes, "Oh Marcius, Marcius, each word who has spoke hath beaded from my heart a root of ancient envy. If Jupiter should from yond cloud speak divine things and say this true." I'd not believe them more than thee, all noble Marsus. Let me twine my arms about that body, where against my craned ash and hundred times hath broke and scarred the moon with splinters. Here I clip the anvil of my sword, and do contest as hotly and as nobly with thy love, as ever in ambitious strength I did contend against thy valor. Know though first, I loved the maid I married, never man sigh truer breath, but that I see th- thee here, thou noble thing, more dances my rapt heart, than when I first my wedded mistress saw, bestride my threshold. Yeah, sure, you can read it as in a gay context. You can also read it that these are two people who, whose meaning of life is on the battlefield and leading their men. <clears throat> and, of course, that Coriolanus has given himself up. It seems that because of his respect towards Coriolanus, he is extremely happy to see him switch sides. And uh, the respect level uh, as a military man, as someone who has come to his side, seems to be quite huge indeed. And and that's precisely... Also my take, like that, that's what, if you ask me, that's what Shakespeare is talking about. Yeah. That, that, that bond. But Shakespeare uses language, finds uses language and visuals to kind of a play with this more affectionate, even, even bit gay rhetoric or, or gay themed scenes here to highlight and emphasize that bond. I'm, I'm really hesitant to say that this that the characters are gay. Yeah. But the scenes are a bit gay. Like in both of these True. cases they are using their wives as metaphors. But the wives themselves are kind of surprisingly absent from the play and the wives are never actually spoken in this fashion. You never None of these men ever give this affection towards their wives. Instead, this is the kind of affection that is spared towards other career soldiers, to those whom Caius live in and meet in the world of battlefields, and who, like Caius, speak war as their native tongue. And there is... To me, this is kind of a stemming from the concept that there's a level between men that only other men can kind of understand. And more notably, mm. this, this is this is stemming from a level that that basically other men of violence can only understand. And this is uh, and as a theme, this is kind of something that also. For example, 
or, or as an idea, this is something that was, for example, also shared by the ancient Greeks, who encouraged sexual and emotional relationships between men for precisely this this same reason that that there's there's a there's a kind of an emotional connect that you can't get from a woman that there's a certain type of sensual fulfillment that only another man can give to you and Coriolanus as a story stretches this concept to also talk about the people who are who are engulfed by war what's with this podcast and uh, homosexual overtones <laughs> or undertones I don't know I'm blaming you man uh. Well, technically, I didn't choose this film <laughs> this time. No, but I'm still blaming you. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I, I'm scapegoating here the best I can. Are you sure you don't have anything, anything to you know, <laughs> con- confess tonight? Yeah. No, but we kind of are doomed to run into, I, I, I guess, homosexual overtones every now and then, thanks to the topics that we discuss. N- yeah, no, 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 not only, and uh, of course you're gonna have it every now and then without any intention. Yeah, like Coriolanus itself, it, it deals, as a story, it deals with extremely heavy subject, and it is a subject that kind of maybe is best put into words through well, this kind of a language. Yeah. But, but as a theme... This isn't kind of... Coriolanus isn't the only place where, where this theme, where, where the notion of, of the separation of military life to civilian life is played out. Like there's, for, for example, to give you another film, the movie Hurt Locker deals with the exact same disconnect. The, the Jeremy Renner's character there is someone who is so used to war and battlefields that he no longer can uh, can operate and function in a in a society in in a peaceful society like he no longer can live with peace that's impossible for him which in the end of the film comes to fruition when when Jeremy at first gets home from Iraq and then there's a really telling scene when he's he's t- standing in a grocery store and there's a whole aisle of, of different cereals, like, cons- like tens of different brands and boxes of, of cereals. And Renner just frozes, frozes over there on, on the grocery store and just stirs at the collection of cereal boxes. And all of a sudden realizes that he no longer can live in the world of peace. Like he's, he's, he's too engulfed by the war. To, to ever fully return back to the normal world, to the, to the normal civilization. And where that leads him is re-enlisting to Iraq, to once again to return back to war. As a, as a concept, that's precisely the same that what Coriolanus is talking about throughout its running time. Uh, the way how Coriolanus approaches, this, uh, the, 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 the approaches the topic is by highlighting the bond between the men of violence in in both in the spoken text and in the visual language. I like it that they went to an actual marketplace in the film as they do in the play. Well, nowadays, 
going to the marketplace is not really a place where people would gather often for much of anything else than except maybe the sale of organic potatoes or something. But I like it that they they kind of it's kind of a funny to see that the people are there in the modern day. This is when Coriolanus is starting, uh, trying to get his votes, and he's there kind of reluctantly because he's not a good at selling himself and also isn't in the best terms with the people. He also kind of hates democracy, or a- at least the concept of of giving people the voice. One, yeah, that's true. One remarkable piece of dialogue is from Coriolanus. Indeed, I would be consul, and he says it with kind of an uncertainty. It doesn't convince all in the in the crowd, and he's struggling to play his role, and has not shown the scars yet, of course, which is a tra- tradition to show for your efforts in the war for the people. Interesting moment where they are inside the Senate, and some of the politicians have turned against him and are willing to openly show it outside of the, the building. We also see some real footage outside from TV, which was a real demonstration against uh, Slobodan Milosevic, which fits perfectly in the moment. If you're very, if you're, if you're the type of, if you know something about the conflict, then you'll probably notice some flags or signs in this footage, which will make you see where this is coming from. I have to confess that I completely miss the flags and signs. Yeah, nevertheless, the tension against Coriolanus mounts. Now there is the, there's the mother trying to persuade her son to fix the things that have gone wrong with the people. Uh, you also see this this one cafeteria that they filmed in, in the new Belgrade. One key quote goes like this. You are too absolute. And uh, as pointed out in, in, in many discussions, this is something that kind of puts it into a, a one sentence what his character is about. Kind of a child in a soldier's suit. Uh, but he has some good I... points in, in his own way. He won't act like a prostitute, or as he says, as like a harlot, against the real him. Yeah, that can kind of be one one take. on on, And you can kind of defend Coriolanus on, on that remark. Like, a lot of the politics you kind of see in, 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 in the play or in the story are very much a politics and... Like, a, a lot of the politics you see in, in the film or in the story are just, you know, people following traditions and, and customs, which don't doesn't really have that much weight in them or doesn't really share any specific meaning. Like, for example, the huge point is being made about Caius not, be, not being willing to show his scars, but when it... When you question it, like, what does the scars and seeing someone's scars, what does that have to do with with actually leading a country, doing politics? Really doesn't measure anything. It's The whole fuss is about Coriolanus not following tradition and not holding to custom. And that that whole plot point, kind, kind of a... Most likely, I would guess it come, comes from, from Plutarch's historical accounts because Plutarch has remarked that 
in in his time the people were given a voice kind of in quotation marks when it came to elections with but this voice often meant just you know shouting like yay nay or, or just shouting in general which in many ways is not actually testing any political candidates promises or political views it's just a system in place that merely tests how like the uh, candidate is or was socially wise and this is kind of the political system that is behind also how how the people have a voice in Korea lanes the the common folk when when conducting politics all they are doing is essentially they are shouting much like in Plutarch's historical accounts and this kind of a li- helps you understand Coriolanus's view that asking the people for their voice is merely a formality and he maybe should not be troubled to follow this kind of a custom because no one in the common folk has an individual vote or individual voice. There's just this shouting match, so why is he the trouble? Mm. You can feel sympathy towards Coriolanus in points like in the TV studio, which is this kind of a be honest about who you are type of a TV show where you're supposed to show the real you. He tries, but this is the kind of a personality that is not easy to easy to see amongst the common people as uh, someone who is a suitable leader. They are constantly also misreading him, which turns into this conflict. Uh, kind of, yeah. But there, there's also a great deal of photolize with Coriolanus himself, who is also un, unable to understand himself. Like Coriolanus does know that something is wrong with him. He does acknowledge that for some reason he can't participate in society the same way that everybody else does. He understands that there is some reason why he feels so alienated from everybody else and the world around him, the world of peace. But he can't understand why that is. And also because Coriolanus is a man of action, he's not an articulator or poet or politician. He can't really express and explain how he is and why he is. That's why it's so important that that his friends try to try to put Coriolanus's nature into words. Like in that st- TV studio when when Sicinius remarks that consider this, he has been bred in war in the wars. Since he would draw a sword and is ill-schooled in potent language, meal and brand together, he throws without distinction. But once again, that's Sicinius trying to explain Coriolanus, because Coriolanus himself can't talk about his problems. And that's kind of a, in the core of the disconnect, once again. That's kind of what showcases in, in the common cry of curse speech that Coriolanus gives. He feels and knows that something is wrong. He doesn't just know what that is. He just knows, like he says, there's a word elsewhere. It's a very strong quote here from Shakespeare, from Coriolanus. And uh, 
I really love it how it goes on its head a, a bit and shakes the audience when he turns the finger from him towards the audience, showing that uh, he won't be stopped. He will do exactly as he sees fit, and the common people are not going to affect him in any way. Yeah, then again, it may have been better if he would have allow- allowed the common people to affect him. Not just career-wise, but yeah, sure. had, 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 had the people been able to affect Karelianus, Karelianus could have become a senator. But also, when it comes to actually, like, when it comes to the meaning of politics, or, or the way how politics are being executed, like, ma- many historians, like, for example, Machiavelli has remarked that it was this kind of a competitive nature and conflicting discourse within Rome itself that ended up being kind of a good for Rome and and the Roman politics. Like it, and and the remark was that if if there would have been a consensus in in political matters within Rome, it would have only led into sub, a supreme power of of the elites and the Roman partisans. So on that regard, even though people not here being unwilling to take Coriolanus and they challenging and pushing against Coriolanus very strongly. That, of course, is, is a tragic event for Coriolanus himself that destroys his political ambitions in the story. But at the same time, it's basically it's the same conflicting and competitive dis- political discourse that happened within Rome itself and which has been argued that actually was good for Romans and Roman politic uh, and the political system within Rome. Mm. Something to kind of I, I guess to note about Coriolanus is that Coriolanus is perhaps the most political play that Shakespeare ever wrote. And at the same time it's perhaps the most optimistic play that Shakespeare ever ever wrote about people and people like common folk taking part in 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 political discourse and political debate like wait, wait, while while it's true that in Coriolanus the people are constantly being dubbed and manipulated by the mostly by the two conniving tribunes the tribunes of the plebs and and on that regard Coriolanus is extremely cynical play about politics and political ambitions but at the same time Coriolanus is one of the rare few plays where the common people still actually hold some political power and hold some some say on the matters. In in typical Shakespearean play where where politics are being discussed like for example in, in Henry the Third and Macbeth and and all, all these these bigger Shakespearean plays, the Politics uh, are just something that are done by the great men of the story. The kings and yars and the senators in their senates. And the, com- uh, the common people just have to kind of walk, walk by and just follow the winning political stance, so to say. And they, they have no say in the matter. And that's kind of one of the big things where 
how and where Coriolanus as a play and as a story difference from the rest of Shakespeare's uh, political works. I, on the other hand, felt that this was an extremely negative dis- description of uh, demo- democracy, even though we have seen that what kind of a man Coriolanus is and who should most likely be ousted. Just this, this that the mass crowds have a wrong image of the guy. They don't have the full image of what he is about and just shouting these very anti-intellectual lines and this way affecting the the full uh, understanding of this person further i saw i saw it as like kind of a, like a lynch mob out to get someone who is not actually as bad as they might think uh, also given the fact that during those times there were a lot of brutal leaders and it was normal and you are kind of right there Like the political system shown to you in Coriolanus, it's very cynical. It's very dark. It's it's the people who are being led essentially by once again those in power, mostly the two tribune of the plebs. And there is a lynch mob quality to the people. And you can even argue that yeah, they they don't get the whole picture of what kind of man Caius Marsus is and. They do partly kind of wrongly convict him in in the story. At the same time, Caius Marsus maybe is a person who never should actually be given political power. power because Caius Marsus, while, yeah, he is on the inside suffering war veteran who suffers from PTSD, who, like said can no longer talk peace. But at the same time, he is also a bit of a tyrant. Like mm-hmm. not, not not throughout his actions, but would you give him political power, he might very well rise up to be a tyrant within Rome. So in that case, kind of ousting him already at this point might be a good thing for the people. Yeah, exactly. I think it's uh, showing the simplicity of the people here. I, I don't. I don't know. I. I kind of see. I on my own. I. Uh, I on my end. Even though the people might be a bit simplistic, I also see them rather complex in in the story. Caius, like, like when it comes to to actually being a political figure, when it comes to being a leader within a peaceful society, you kind of are required to to understand rhetorics and use rhetorics to your advantage like that's in in a civil discourse that's kind of what you have to do and you have to be able to put yourself on the other person's shoes and that is precisely what Caius Marcius can't do like Caius Marcius mm-hmm. sees sees the rhetorics and and doing a peaceful politics he sees that as simply you know pretty words and and scheming and and manipulation and nothing else and he is completely unwilling to take part on that he's unwilling to be a rhetorical person and that's i would say that is the most that is the kind of the key element the key component that Caius Marcius lacks and because of that 
and if we take it like you have to be a rhetorical person, you have to be able to take part in rhetorics in order to allow or be able to make civilization and and communal living possible. In that case, Caius Marcius would be like the worst possible person ever to be put on a place of power. Like you should never actually let the man become a senator because he's unable to to work in in the way how you would have to work when, when you are being a leader in in a peaceful and civilized society and not on a battlefield. Uh, whichever the outcome, the people are not really recognizing his war efforts and somehow seeing the scars is, or, or wounds is such a big deal that they are not willing to believe it until they see it on his skin. Maybe it's, that's the it's times. M- it's more more than believing that he has scars. It's more about Caius Marcius actually willing to play the ball mm. and a- actually do what they ask from him. Most definitely a guy who is not a politician and played his cards dead wrong. Also a guy who may have actually become a tyrant had he been given the power or the opportunity. But now the tyrant is seen in a kind of a comical modern setup that they have built where Coriolanus is seen hitchhiking and resting on, on in the swamp, growing a long beard, not having any possessions or money except maybe his bag and clothes or garments. Some of it is shot in Montenegro when he arrives uh, to the city of the Volskians in Antium, shot in the Bay of Kotor in Montenegro, in this wide shot of the city from above. More places to visit here. Montenegro definitely on my list now. <laughs> but that was kind of a given. It's one of the prettiest parts of Europe right there. And we are introduced, to, we're seeing, we see more of the, the personality of, of Phidias as he walks on the streets and greets the, the, the people and is definitely this not even necessarily really any kind of a politician, but he's the kind of a man who feels for his people and defending these people as well, but also can be seen as uh, like the good neighbor or something like that. A proper leader, if you will. They had a sequence here where the guard in the cellars would have been distracted by a lady asking for cigarettes, and this way Coriolanus would have gotten inside the cellar bunker where Ophidius is, and once again, in the play, it goes a little bit differently. He starts... It, yeah, uh, it, it yeah. does. They yeah, there, there's some kind of a... Right, it's some kind of a long-winded discussion that he has with the with the Volskians, and then suddenly he starts uh, to, to be in contact with with Ophidius. Yeah, so in, in the original play, Coriolanus simply pushes himself into, into Ophidius' household. It's it's being some kind of a lavish house, mansion type of thing, in instead of the concrete cellar bunker that, that Gerard Butler has has chosen for himself. But Coriolanus simply, you know, washes in into Aphidius' home while Aphidius is having having this party for his his generals and and the Volsky senators and 
the servants of Aphidius household kind of, kind of come there and stop Coriolanus, start asking Coriolanus, who, you, who are you, what are you doing here, and Coriolanus is just, you know, trolling the guys, giving non-answers, and they, they re- re- repeatedly ask him to leave, Coriolanus refuses, and at some point one of the servants go and fetch Aphidius, who now comes into the scene and starts also asking that who the hell are you and what are you doing in my home and at that point finally Coriolanus actually shows his face and lets everybody know who he really is. And Alphidius and Coriolanus get into a kind of like Raytheon said to a kissing distance but when I was walking when I was uh, looking at this film I got the reference to the earlier quote beard to beard now they are beard to beard but something terrible does not happen just a little show off with the knife but it ends up being like a passionate hug yeah Ray Fiennes said that he didn't like outright mean this to be anything homosexual but maybe it's something that you can read in different ways or it going a little bit to the you know to the border where you could say that this is this could be a little bit more something else uh, but not quite and, and and like I said, that's quite sticking with also how, how Shakespeare intended these moments. This is followed by another kind of intimate moment where the hair of Coriolanus is being cut. There's the one who is cutting the hair is replaced by Ophidius who cuts then Coriolanus's hair. And there's a short scene where we see the lonely and sad Meninius because Martius has joined Ophidius. But there's an interesting quote from Aufidius where he says in the Volscian camp that when Caius, Rome is thine, thou art poorest of all, then shortly art thou mine. So this is kind of, uh, could be seen as like one fire drives out the other fire, something is always replaced by something else. But then if he's saying that he's kind of, I think he's saying that he is going to take the power from Coriolanus when Rome has been taken control of. Or he could even say something something more, like, we are going to kill Coriolanus when all of this is over. Yeah, that's that. the, the last one was also my reading, when it comes to Aphidius in, in the story, and more specifically in, in Fiennes' movie. Or if you want to read it even into more odd directions, you could... Also put that then shortly art though mine into homosexual context. Yeah, I I wouldn't stretch it that far, but to <laughs> me in, in in the film, Aphidius always comes off as a conniving and scheming little shit. Who even after he makes a pact with Coriolanus, is constantly just you know buying his time, thinking when will I stab Coriolanus in the back? Yeah, that's what I get from this. Yeah. Panel has gathered, Mininius decides Coriolanus might hear him, so he tries to, he goes to try his luck. And Mininius and Coriolanus meet, wife, mother, child, I know not. My affairs are servanted to others. Wow, how do you read that one? So is this the, the moment where Coriolanus disowns his entire family and puts them on the firing range? Or is this to say that the, they are secondary to my interests? But they, I still have some affection towards them. I'm my, my take is kind of a mixture of of both. Uh. In in practice, 
what Coriolanus is is doing. He is actually putting them in the firing range. They are going to be in the Rome that Coriolanus and Aphidius are going to conquest and then burn to the ground. Which well, most definitely, it doesn't sound like he's going to make any amends or any kind of a protection for his family during this time. Most likely, yeah, no. I I don't think that Coriolanus fully understands what he's saying, or he doesn't fully understand what this line of policy would actually mean for his family and loved ones. I I don't think that Coriolanus intentionally is is now going full, I don't care about my mother, and let the bitch burn attitude or, or direction. Then again, throughout the film and the play, Coriolanus has kind of made the case that uh, that he is a bit of a kid in this suit of a soldier. And he might be just shooting this. Well, like you said, it could be that he doesn't really know what he's saying. He's saying it, but he doesn't really mean what he's saying. Yeah, he, he means part of it. Like, he still means to take over Rome and, if need be, burn it to the ground. But he hasn't thought it through in the sense that what that would mean for his wife kid and and mother but that once again is kind of a Coriolanus being a man of war and, and someone who can only speak war and understand war Coriolanus yeah. only at this point he only sees Rome as another battlefield and since you can't really distinguish between friend and foe loved one and enemy on a battlefield Coriolanus accidentally ends up also condemning his loved ones. Definitely hasn't thought out this very much through because in the next scene already he is he is ready to back off when discussing things further with his family. Yeah, and that's kind kind of a it's kind of a remarkable moment on on the story wise. It it's kind of a high point of Coriolanus as a character. Yeah, this is an old sugar factory in Belgrade. Quote, Oh, a kiss, as long as my exile, sweet as my revenge. Wow, is this, just, again, Coriolanus being extremely childish? As in, if put into modern words, Oh, a kiss, that was long as fuck, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, I, I read it kind of a Coriolanus Finally, actually understanding what he is gambling and about to lose here. Like, uh, the, the main main thrust of the scene, Coriolanus meeting with his, his family, at least to me, is that uh, throughout the play, uh, the story, Coriolanus has been previously been reasoned with logic and, and force. Senators and his mom uses logic. And Aphidius uses force to oppose Coriolanus. But now here he's actually being reasoned with compassion. And that kind of puts Coriolanus off his element. He's forced to notice and recognize the fact that if he attacks Rome, Rome will still have his loved ones in it. His wife and family will live in Rome. He's attacking their home. He's attacking his own home. He's attacking against his loved ones. He might end up hurting his loved ones when he breaches the gates of Rome. So that kind of forces Coriolanus to actually uh, recognize 
that he has affection and feelings towards his loved ones. He doesn't really want to hurt his mom, wife and child. That's not exactly how this quote really came to me. A kiss as long as my exile. So what I read here is basically saying that I don't want to do this. This kiss was horrible. Please don't kiss me again because I don't feel anything towards you anymore. Even though he might not really mean it. Okay, because I, I on the other hand, I read that quote as a sign of longing. longing. Like very much Coriolanus longs back to Rome. That's why he's attacking back there head first to break through the, ga- the, the gates of the city that once exiled him. Sure, it's also an act of revenge and Coriolanus wanting to avenge his exile. But he's also at the same time, he's heading back home. That's up. That's the direction where Coriolanus has basically went after every single military campaign that he has waged before. So, to to me, you know, as long as my exile, it's Coriolanus admitting that he kind of wants to get back back to Rome. He kind of longs back there, and he kind of also longs this affection from his wife. Coriolanus also remarks that he hasn't had any other like he hasn't had lovers or prostitutes or anything anything of the kind while he has been away from Rome. I've noticed that this uh, old English language leaves a lot of verbs unspoken so this could also be like uh, as long as my exile longing for something who knows but I took it as this kiss is as painful as my exile. Yeah, yeah, it can be also that. And it can also be as painful as my exile in the sense that Coriolanus really kind of really feels hurt by his exile. And the same way he kind of feels hurt by the fact that that he's now feeling the hurt because he actually finally once again gets kissed by someone. Without having seen the or heard or uh, read the play before watching this film, I felt that Coriolanus might get his family even killed at this moment with quotes such as, Oh mother, what have you done? And it could have been the firing squad for the family after that one. To follow his ideals instead of caring about his family. But that doesn't happen. No, uh, another really big red flag for, for, for the family here is kind of the fact that, well, Coriolanus and now the family is also being completely surrounded by Woloskis. So that the family is gambling quite a lot when they are asking Coriolanus to to actually stop the war campaign and come home, while Aphidius is actually standing right there next to them. Yeah, and Aphidius is following indeed everything and says that I was moved with all. So more or less saying, I believe, something like, and I was also moved very much, which is followed after what Coriolanus asked, like, wasn't that the shit, man? But uh, Ophidius agrees for peace here. Later, it just comes a little bit out of nowhere, kind of stabs Coriolanus for that peace that they already agreed to. What the hell? Mm, well, that there are a couple of things that kind of can play into this one. The first one, of course, is that Ophidius always was planning to, at some point, betray Coriolanus. So this is nothing else than him just seeing his his schemes to the end. Another can be that Ophidius also, or or the Wolskis, never were 
entirely ready to take over the Rome. Like they wanted to threaten Rome and show their power, but they never actually wanted to break through the gates. Because then they would actually have to also deal with the with the Roman politics and maybe somehow solve the whole whole food crisis and stuff like that. Take some responsibility for for the now conquested Rome. So on that on on that vein, it might actually best suit for Aphidius to get almost through the gates and then they, at the final moment to write a peace treaty that is pretty good also for the Volskis. Like now they can actually set up the terms for that peace. Rome has to give something to the Volskis or the Volskis are going to break through the gates. So the peace might actually be kind of a win-win situation for Aphidius. Yeah, but it, it, it it's also, also something that makes Aphidius look like a horrible asshole. If anyone got the wind of the fact that Aphidius is not, after all, a game with the peace treaty that was just signed and he would be willing to attack Rome at any minute now. Uh, kinda yeah, but then again, that's a game that Aphidius was already willing to play. I yeah, mean, but if this is the, the, his the, the, end goal, then okay. And then getting rid of his old villain at the end, okay. But the way that he is starting to talk to the soldiers... Quote, he sold the blood and labor of our great action, therefore, shall he die? Well, as you have hinted, it could also be read that he is just trying to manipulate the, the uh, opinion of his comrades. He most definitely has, uh, is also manipulating the opinion of his comrades. In in the play, it's the Volsky senators or something of a kind... To whom Aphidius makes his case that Coriolanus now must die, and who vote for Coriolanus's death at the end of the play. So there, there is most definitely in the story there, there is the aspect of Aphidius has to make others come to his point here, make others also agree that Coriolanus has to die. Something that might also play into why Aphidius kind of makes. 180 here is that he might also feel betrayed by Coriolanus, emotionally wise. Uh, up until this point, Coriolanus and Aphidius have both been men who who are career soldiers, who speak war. But what happens to Coriolanus when he meets meets his family and makes and signs the peace treaty is that he... In a way, Coriolanus, in the end of the story, he finds a way how to also live with peace and how how to let go of the of the constant battle. That's something that Aphidius himself kinda can't do. Aphidius is still locked into this this battlefield field mentality, and now he sees how Coriolanus, his next of kind in combat has let go of war and has learned how to live in peace. And he might actually feel emotional hurt because of that. It's a full, you're right, it's a full character arc for the character of Coriolanus and makes Ophidius look like in the end as the definite villain. The blade that started the film also ends the movie yeah, as it's I... used to kill Coriolanus. I'm not entirely sure do I see Aphidius necessary as a villain. 
Like, once again, this becomes a question of the connection between men and more, more than that connection between men who live or have lived military life. And what, what Aphidius kind of loses here is that chance for, for, the, for that kind of a connection. And I, I kind of can take Aphidius' side. Yeah, looks like Coriolanus learned something good about life, whereas Ophidius just continues his typical ways and maybe more appears more as the Coriolanus at the start of the film. Maybe, kinda. Like, you know, this more of a boy. But Coriolanus altogether is an interesting, pe- uh, interesting beast in, in the sense that it, it's a play that works kind of a ex- as an example of a piece of art that can be viewed and consumed by both sides of the political argument, those on the right and those on the left. Because Coriolanus has been championed by by real-life fascists. Like, this was taught wildly in schools in Nazi Germany. And the, oh, wow. the, the reading that Nazis had of Coriolanus was that Coriolanus was this this pinnacle of an of an Aryan believes he was this great strong hero, a noble heroic warrior who is be- being betrayed by the weak and the unruly and undeserving masses. They contrasted Coriolanus against Hitler, for cried out loud. But at the same time, as as Nazis endorsed the play, as as fascists have, have endorsed the play. Also, liberals have sided, have, you know, taken the play into their hearts. Liberals, on the other hand, often side with the common people in the play, calling mm. question the Caius's more elitist and totalitarian, to- totalitarian features and, and beliefs, seeing Coriolanus more as a cautionary tale about the follies of class divide and, and believers like Caius is that political power should only be viewed by said group of people and the caca of the deserving noble ones and who should be allowed to govern over the common riffraff. And in the liberal take, this is precisely a cautionary tale of that, how you should kind of recognize those people and react to those people or at least try not to give those people all the power in the world. And why... It's important also for those people who believe in this elitist worldview to, in the end, see the point of the people and kind of understand the value of democracy. There's so many readings to this story that uh, I think we should just simply invite Shakespeare fella into this podcast to set the record straight (laughs) once and for all. What were you trying to say with this play? Uh, well, yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, then again, then again, we are talking about piece of art, especially in in the text. This being a play that uses poetic language of all of the goddamn things. So I don't, I'm not entirely sure if even the Shakespeare, Shakespearean fellow can actually answer what the play is fully about, and it just doesn't come in the fact of of six million different readings. The Fiends fellow, though, was able to describe the ending scene of the film as, quote, 
more or less like kind of like hunters in ancient tribes respect the animal they've killed because Ovidius hugs Coriolanus before he lets him go to the ground on on laying position when he has stabbed Coriolanus. Yeah, so he and, li- likened that to that. Yeah, and in in the original text, they in the the, the play ends up with the Wolskis carrying away. Caius's corpse in this kind of honorary fashion. Aphidius taking one, like they, they put the spears on the ground and they raise Caius's corpse with the spears and the same way as as one carries a body in a in a coffin to the final resting place. And Aphidius is one of those carriers in that moment. So there is, once again, there is that moment of respect right after they kill him. The play also ends with these respectful words. My rage is gone, and I am struck with sorrow. Take him up. Help. Three o the chiefest soldiers. I'll be one. Beat thou the drum that it speak mournfully. Trail your steel pikes. Though in this city he hath widowed and unchilded many a one, which to this hour bewail the injury, yet he shall have a noble memory. Assist, said by Ophidius. Yeah. They also tried different end shots for the film. There was one where the Volskians would gather to take pictures with their cell phones of the carcass. And then that image was relayed back into the home of Volumnia, who would probably be feeling very mournful about it. That might actually be the most dickiest take that you can actually take of, of the material. Why is that? Well, well that, that would make the Volskians the most asshole characters. Mm. In in the play, like holy yeah. fuck, that there would be no compassion and no honoring the now dead Coriolanus. The most definitely that would go against the ending dialogue of the play. I, I would say. Yeah, I I can't. But fully, like once again, like, like I said, I haven't listened to the comment uh, commentary track myself. But kind of a go go. Uh, Coming off with your description of the alternate ending, I kind of can't understand what the fuck they were thinking. Mm, then again, Ophidius is kind of a dick because he's the backstabbing monster. Yeah, yeah, that's also true. The budget for the film was 7.7 million US dollars. Premiered at the 61st Berlin International Film Festival and opened the Belgrad, Belgrad uh, International Film Festival. There was one review from Manola Dargis of the New York Times, something that I think uh, was quite fitting, quote, Mr. Fines has made smart choices here, notably by surrounding himself with a strong secondary cast. Yep, film was also nominated for Golden Berlin Bear at the Berlin International Film Festival 61st one. And the, that's for Coriolanus. Favorite performance? Ah. Uh... Kind of sort of has to be Ray Fiennes, like no contents. Bit un- unfair as as since as Coriolanus he gets to hawk most of the screen screen time, gets the best quotes, gets gets the best speeches and all that. But you know what can you do? Well, one thing you can do is to give the mantle to Vanessa Redgrave because she blew me away, absolutely blew me away. <laughs> As well here. Like, granted, yeah. Ray Fiennes is on fire here. 
no doubt about it. But if I have to name anything else than Vanessa Redgrave, oh my god. Ooh, yeah. Shaken here totally by her performance. Favorite scene? Uh, that would be the common cry of curse speech. Yeah. Something that was one of the most memorable for me was definitely the sugar factory scene, but uh, also when we first time get to the Volumnia flat and she's explaining her thinking of why she has sent her son to the war and to be the general. Favorite quote? Uh, <clears throat> Mine goes to Brian Cox. This is kind of a heavy one because the... The whammer here builds up, so there, there, there is some. There is one line from Brutus in the mix, but basically Cox starts. I know you can do very little alone. You talk of pride, or that you could turn your eyes toward the napes of your neck and may make but an interior survey of your good selves. All that you could, and Brutus remarks, "What then, sir?" and and the counter is, why, then you should discover a praise of unmeriting, proud, violent, testy magistrates, alias fools, as any in Rome. Definitely a great one. Of course, it could be too easy to go with the curse quote, which goes on forever from Ray Fiennes in the TV studio. But if something else, then definitely this goes to Brian Cox once again. <laughs> there is no more mercy in him. Then there is milk in a male tiger. Also, I was uh, happily surprised that uh, Ray Fiennes really adored this piece of dialogue. And he really wanted to leave it in. Yeah, Shakespeare most definitely is someone who can dish out some really bad, like pissing them off lines in his text. Yeah, this guy in the modern days would have owned all of us in a public conversation. Most constant, definitely. Constant dish, dish. It, it, it would be really interesting to see what kind of a rapper Shakespeare would have made. <laughs> That's an image that you can't shake. <laughs> Enjoy that one, you stuffy old prince. Favorite kill? Uh, it's Coriolanus at the end of the film. That's kind of the only kill that really holds some greater significance. Or, or, or the other violence throughout the film is kind of kind of this this casual. It's it's that soldier uh, soldier over there. It's that soldier over here. It's these two guys who gets taken out by the bus bomb. Mm, except that there is this uh, family by the car, the three people that have been murdered, and uh, this is where Ophidius goes into this long speech how much he hates Coriolanus and how he's going to avenge everything. Yeah, and, uh, I, I, I don't count collateral damage. Well, that's also one question. Is it collateral damage or is it Coriolanus just killing people randomly? Civilians, like they both do. Actually, now that you ask, a bit hard to say. There are those moments when Coriolanus is going through the apartment building mm-hmm. and he, he faces civilians and he doesn't knowingly gun any of them down. He does shoot that one guy by accident when he blindly fires his pistol through the door, then kicks the door open, sees that lady has lost her husband, and after that he's a bit more careful, and he doesn't shoot any more civilians. So 
he doesn't, or at least it's not being shown to you that he knowingly, you know, takes aim at civilian and just blasts away. But I got the feeling that he is this type of a person who doesn't care he about. He could be that type of person. Except the the people who are serving him water. Yeah. Yeah. He he could be. It's it's kind of a hard. I I can't say for for certain, but but he could be very well. It it also could just be like a quick situation, and Coriolanus gets has gotten a bit too trigger happy once again, gunning down the the car. But yeah, now now that you actually propose the questions, I I don't know. Like maybe they are not collateral damage at all. Yeah, yeah. For me, it would be also the favorite kill. God, the, it's kind of a sick category, but it would also, for me, be Coriolanus. But uh, if I were to choose something else, my mind is gravitating towards this car. <laughs> By the way, regarding the ending of the film, did you get, like, this feeling that, oh, so that was it? Did, were you disappointed by the ending? Of course you know the play, but do you feel that it would have needed a little bit more oomph? Because that's also the popular opinion I hear, that that's it, really? Like nothing else? Um, kinda no. Yeah. Like it, it, it does end up like, like you know, you hitting a brick wall. That they just dump Coriolanus, uh, Coriolanus's body, and they, you know, black screen and credits. It's like, like it's like snap, and the film ends all of a yeah, sudden. The, the place, though, the place, though, a tragedy, and it's a fitting end for a tragedy. Our main character is gone. What to do next? Well, yeah, that's it. It's it uh, also I kind of like it in its bluntness. This is war, and um, yeah, I don't know. It's fitting, kind of a crude ending for a crude situation. Yeah, I I also like it a lot because of it, or, or because of the crudeness and the boldness mm. it has. But at the same time, I can very well see people having problem with the way how the way. With the film ends, like it, it's it's the the way how the film ends. It's it it is a bit problematic because it doesn't kind of reach, it it doesn't reach a typical film ending. I kind of like it, but at the same time, the the effect is that it's just you know you just hit a wall and the film ends. That's that. Yeah. And I I can very well understand and sympathize with anyone who actually feels a bit let down by the ending. Random confusion question. Please don't tell me that you have been LARPing Coriolanus. No, thanks. Heavens, no. I, I, I wouldn't touch that nerd shit with a ten-foot pole held by somebody else. Of course not. Heaven forbid. Heaven forbid. I, I only do, like, like serious hobbies, like film <laughs> podcasting. That's the correct answer. <laughs> That's the correct answer. First shot that comes to mind. Is Coriolanus shouting at the people where in in the film studio during the common cry of Kirsby? Yeah, Most right definitely now. one of those close-ups when he's being angry as fuck. Like when he's shouting, I banish you. Oh my god, yes. And once again, I have to state that it's... Well, we haven't actually stated it. The fact that they have been able to make the ancient language or kind of... I don't really think that the people at the time were talking exactly in this way. It's also 
a bit of a like a written language, yes. I, um, yeah, but it is. <laughs> but um, I also sometimes feel a little bit unsure if this is the kind of language that the common people would have understood completely at their time, or if it's a little bit like highbrow language used here. Although it's been made the case that Shakespeare supposedly was some kind of a every man's writer that everybody could understand and enjoy. Yeah, hard to say because you also gotta have to ask how much opportunities to go into theater every man had during those times in the 1600s. Was mm, was it simply yeah. a pastime for well, not necessarily just for the elite. But but for the elite and and the well-off middle class, right? And in order to have a lot of vocabulary, you would still be would still have to be able to read. So, how many of those people that were not able to read are in the crowds? Like the common people, I would imagine. Or I don't know how many people read at that time, but I think it's not that many. Well, at least there was a lot of illiteracy during those times. Right, and. So my point being is that I have to raise my hat for the crew for being able to pull it off this language in such of a natural way that you can buy that the, this is the words that they might use every day. They get pretty close to that. They they do. The illusion does break every now and then. Like the, there are few moments where where you really kind of get really strong. Oh, this is a theater play. Put on the film vibes coming off from it. I know. I, I think I got that feeling in a couple of places, even with Rafe Fine's I, fine I, I do also. I yeah. do also. But see, seeing exactly how difficult the language is, how kind of a completely different the whole way of speaking is when compared to modern times. I I still do raise my hat for the effect that they managed to pull off and. And the way how they were actually able to translate Shakespeare's text. Hmm. Uh, first shot that comes to my mind is uh, basically when Coriolanus gets stabbed in the end. I don't know <laughs> if this category should be retired because it doesn't <laughs> work so well because we go through the entire film and then we talk about LARPing and oh, what's your what's the first <laughs> image that comes to your mind? Eh, yeah. But what would you? Well, what pulled you out? Um, nothing really. I, I do have some minor problems with the film. My, for for the scissors of of sacrilege section, really minor, but nothing that actually took me out of the picture. No, this was a, quite of a mesmerizing uh, <clears throat> experience. Something that really really keeps you pulled in. And when it comes to that, yeah, what pulled me in? <laughs> a lot of things. A lot of things. Redgrave's delivery of some lines, once again, captivating as can be. Yeah, to me, the first first thing that pulled me in was the aggressive cinematic language and, and style that the film has. Like there, there, are, there are moments where, where the cinematography and, and the movie itself really has, has this oomph. Like, for oh, example, yeah. when the citizens are revolting and... And they get attacked by by the police, and there are, there are those handheld camera shots as the police are dragging the people on the concrete and banging up on them, hitting them with batons, and you know circling one person, just kicking him as he's on, on a crowd on the ground, or, or the or, or urban 
urban firefight scenes or, or some of the scenes as they are driving around in their cars and arriving into a set location. There's just that that kind of there's the handheld camera plus the background music plus the kind of aggressive nature that every movement has on those scenes. And that's kind of yeah. that's the first thing that always clues me in. Yeah, the fact that he had so many so many seasoned professionals in his team, like Barry Aykroyd as the as the DP, it really helped the movie to be as to be as good as as it is. Uh, Barry Aykroyd also did the DP stuff for the Hurt Locker, by the way. Yep, he did. Scissors of Sacrilege. Now, what's happening here, Henrik? Um, from my end, maybe some small fixes to cutting so that it wouldn't be. So- so kind of a, uh, so a snap and cut that type of editing. Uh, maybe smooth that around in in couple of scenes. Uh, also, maybe a few just a bit more smoother dialogue del- deliveries here and there, so that you wouldn't get that theater play as a film feeling. Mm-hmm. For me, it's a little bit trickier to say. If I would change something, I would definitely try to do something about the fact that you have this, uh, you know, concussion scene with Coriolanus and Ophidius, and then the next shot, as I said, is when uh, Ophidius is approaching the car with the three bodies. That was a uh, that was clearly forced cutting. They didn't have material probably to insert here because they really have a, had a tight schedule and really had to fight, fight, fight to get the film shot in the amount of time that they had. Also, I heard that this film did go through uh, a lot of cutting. There was a lot of footage of the extra dialogue shot, but it was trimmed immensely in the edit. But no, I can't really say much else than that. You really know you're watching Coriolanus when... When the common folk pollute your air, the bastards. You really know you're watching Coriolanus when you think you have had a had a brain stroke when you start hearing the dialogue <laughs> you, you should also uh, also check out Ian McKellen's uh, <laughs> Richard III which also is okay. a really great Shakespeare filmatization okay it also does, does this more modernized take it it switches the film uh, the story into was it 1930s and Gagarva has also some scenes that really has extremely strong Nazi Hitler vibes in it. But but altogether, all, all it's it's quite, kind of like a gangster jazz take on Shakespearean play. It's really great stuff. And what's your really great stuff for tonight's three adjectives of the film? Um, mine would be truthful, heartfelt, and. A bit painful. Uh, tyrannical, powerful, milkless. Milkless. Well, well you know the. the well, 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 I, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, you know, uh, trying to counter argue or anything else. I'm merely interested. Where did the milk come from? Uh, it came from the Brian Cox quote that there is no milk in the male tiger. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Good one. Uh-huh. Good one. Uh-huh. Good one. Uh, did you look at your watch during this film? Oh, I did not. I, I, I kind of didn't even have a possibility to check my watch because 
their dialogue actually is so goddamn com- uh, complex that if you start checking your watch, you miss the dialogue and then you drop out of the film. Actually, I'm quite curious what happens in the Finnish subtitles of this film. I guess you check this Finnish sub- subtitles, so I suppose it's from the Finnish translation, pretty direct. The Finnish translation of the play directly or something like this. Uh, I'm not sure then if it's directly from Finnish translation. There, there are a couple of translations of the play. I actually the f- have them here with me, like. So there is the collected plays of William Shakespeare version, which is from 1958, which is kind of a really hard to to read, even even as a film. Not so that the language itself is is that difficult, but it tries to keep up very much with Shakespeare's writing style using 50s Finnish language, and it kinda is maybe a bit messy. At times, then there is the more recent translation from 2008, which mm-hmm. also stays true to to the Shakespearean text, but it does kind of a it, it does make it a bit more simplistic, like like the the outlook of the language. It makes the makes the story and the text a bit more easier to read. Not studying slang, at least though. No, not nothing like that. This is, but the 2008 is very much very clear fin finish. And when it comes to the translation of the film, uh, I'm 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 guessing that they actually did their own translation for the movie. Like it's it's even more. And was it understandable in Finnish for you, or more? Understandable? I would say it was even more understandable than the 2008 book oh. translation of the play. They may have, like, like the 2008 is from Lauri Sipari, and it might be that for the film, the translator has taken notes from Sipari and has taken has taken the overall direction of how to translate from Sipari, but it's, it's uh, where Sipari still is cover, he's, he's translating a play, in the film version, they are more or less Kind of a translating a typical film text that now has Shakespearean kind of a quality to uh, quality to it. It's really kind of a hard to explain, like like how how the different translations different from each other. I can definitely see some general Sandrew metronome Finnish translator joking into their cheerios when they would have been assigned to translate this film. Yeah, yeah. I, I I can't believe that this this has been a nightmare for for, for the poor translator, especially since you also know that when, when you are translating it, you already know that this is just going to be direct DVD feature. So your translation is not getting a theatrical release and screening. And even with that DVD, you kind of know that it's going to be a kind of a niche product. Like it's it's not one of those DVDs that everybody in Finland will buy. Hmm. But um, yeah. Also, I didn't watch my watch. But then the only question that stands for tonight, I believe, is Henrik, would you recommend Coriolanus? No, because it's Shakespeare, and Shakespeare was was poetry, and poetry is kind of gay. True, true that. Everybody yeah. who has heard any 
poetry from Shakespeare in, in high school is probably feeling a little bit icky about everything Shakespeare because they truly make the best effort to make everyone hate Shakespeare there. They do, the cruel bastards. I can't understand why they do it. Yeah. But, yeah, but, but honestly, obviously, yeah, I would recommend Coriolanus, just like I recommend it for this list. Uh, we have previously, we have, and in this episode also, we have remarked that there's this sentiment that, oh, there's this sentiment of seeing the world through the eyes of a soldier. And that's something that is often talked about in Finland also. And even oh, though... okay. You wanted to talk about their army experiences for the next half an hour as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I still have free disk space, so, you know, here, here comes. <laughs> but but uh, honestly, even though military life in Finland is very different, for example, military life in in US, since we don't see active combat that much... Uh, But that still, in my opinion, doesn't change the fact that you may still, even in Finland, if if you go through army, you can still end up with the same disconnect from the, from the society. God knows I ended up with that. I'm still kind of dealing with it even today because I guess I got a bit too deep into the military programming. But there is there there is this there is the problem that that the Finnish society, like every civilized society, it abhors violence, it abhors killing, it doesn't accept those. If you Except do those... some some random generals in the army, yeah, who are advocating for it. Yeah, and that's that's kind kind of the, the precisely the problem. Like like your civilized society, you are supposed to disown killing and stay away from it. But what? what you are in the army, you are highly trained terrained killer. So how do you yeah. exist in, in society after you leave the barracks and you try to, once again, become part of the world where you are supposed to be soft and emotional. And at the same time, you kind of fee- face the problem that you can't really ever talk about that disconnect. Partly because it's hard to put the words Partly because it's kind of even shameful for yourself to start talking about it, start talking about how you are a killer, possibly, and try to explain that. And partly because most definitely your significant other won't wanna hear a word of it. Like when the dudes start talking about the military experience, it's the immediate eye rolling commences. And yeah, it, it, this it, is the clear, this is the clear disconnect. If you have. If you don't know what it is to like to be an, in an army, you don't have, you don't share those experiences, and I can perfectly understand why. For example, because most women don't go to army, they don't see the same values in these movies as we do. Yeah, and they don't necessarily see the same kind of a bad shit that you can see when when you serve in the army like there's a lot of problematic elements there are a lot of tro- elements that can affect you very personal and deep level and that's just something that you then are supposed to carry with you deal with while keeping your goddamn mouth mouth sh- shut like the, the the Finnish guys being unable to talk about anything else except their army experiences and ice hockey it's a common joke in Finland but it also holds some truth in it because it's really hard to actually ever 
convey those experiences to anyone except you know another dude in a bar after after few beers when you can finally open up about those things but yeah, this applies for everything in every situation if you yeah. don't know something about something you don't know the rules of the ice hockey then you probably don't care about ice hockey if you yeah. don't make the effort to read shakespeare then you probably don't find anything here in yeah. uh, coriolanus but coriolanus most most of all coriolanus is about <clears throat> that disconnect and it's about why you should still try to deal with that disconnect and it's an attempt to put that disconnect into world so on that regard if you for some reason feel that you are expected to take part in a society that you can completely understand or comprehend you you feel that you are supposed to be part of something that you kind of can't find a way how to be part of in that case you know i kind of would recommend coriolanus to you because like like maybe maybe you see it and you watch it and you think it's just a bullshit film with way too fancy for itself language yada 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 but at the same time it it does talk about that same topic so maybe through Coriolanus you can you yourself can find a way to put into words those things that are too complex to be put into words so to say so yeah yeah most definitely you know check out Coriolanus high recommendations are we unintentionally supporting fascism in this podcast I, i'm not supporting fascism god damn it <laughs> yeah but i just uh, realized that i have been more supportive of the viewpoint of coriolanus here than the common people so but no no yeah you're not. fucking nazi <laughs> <laughs> oh dear the, 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 this, this is this is partly my fault i should never have shown you earth of a nation yeah bastard yeah i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, but um i on my part also would recommend highly coriolanus i was really surprised to see the score on imdb which is of course extremely valuable information as uh, 6.1 out of 10 i believe at this moment something like that it's not really that highly right film right and i think it all boiled boils down to the very not so the not so accessible language but if you're willing to go through that i think you're gonna have a hell of a ride so please watch coriolanus i think it's starting to look like that i'm going to go watch a polish film called bad boy in about 40 minutes to the theater so i think okay ready to sign off so i guess in that case i have to let you all to run to the movie theaters Right. And just when I was actually starting to go, going to start my two hour rant about the military experiences. Yeah, such of a bad boy you are. God, God about... are, are you really really sacrificing, you know, listening to me ramble about army for for a Polish film? I most definitely am. I'm I'm, I'm the I'm the treacherous bastard who <laughs> left his home country to watch this, Polish this, films. This is the dude I have to work with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah yeah hey let's let's not keep you waiting any more longer you are going to be in a hurry in any minute now so you know 
Well, well thank you, you know, all for the... joining us. <laughs> the, the, also, it's uh, the, the fact that the advertisements go on for like 25 minutes, so it'll be relatively okay still. But hey, thanks for joining us. And in the meanwhile, and in the meantime, and in the meanwhile, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, and other places where the common curse concludes. <laughs> See you next week, girls. Until then. And let the pitch burn. I've got a funny feeling. There's something wrong today I've got a funny feeling And it won't go away